Hello, everyone. Good morning. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Resonate. If you're new, I'm glad to be with you. I want to give a special shout out to our friends who are joining us online. So thankful that you are able to do that and we're able to, to invade your living room or wherever it is. And always, we just want to give a special shout out to our homies who are holding it down in Hayward. We love you guys and so thankful also to have you here. Uh, we are, this was said last week, but I just want to make sure that we know how cool this is. We're actually joining with a hundred other Bay Area churches in this series right now. Did you realize that? Like, we're not the only church that's doing this series, Explore God. There are a hundred other churches. And what that says is there's one church. You dig? There's one church. And we might meet at different places. We might meet in different locations. We might do things a little bit differently. But Jesus has one church. And uh, I just think that this demonstration is such a beautiful picture of the unity that we have in Christ. And so I just, I think that's an incredible thing. Now we're doing this series, Explore God, because we want to, we want to be able to give answers to some of these big questions that are out there in regards to faith and belief and God and the Bible. And so we want to give answers. We also want to give language you know, language to, so that if, if someone asks you, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're a believer in God, that you have language to be able to answer other people's questions. It's one thing to get answers for yourself, but it's another thing to be able to take those answers and share them with others. Last week, Pastor Edwards started things off and asked the question, does life have a purpose? And the answer was, that we came to was yes, and that the answer to that, the purpose of life is wrapped up in something bigger someone bigger than ourselves, and that is God himself. And the question we're going to ask this morning, as Dylan shared, is, is there a God? Yes. So, let's close in prayer. We can get out there and get donuts. <laughs> Lame pastor joke, I know. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. We are going to attempt to answer that question, and I want you to know from the get-go that I am standing on the shoulders of giants this morning. I am borrowing heavily or taking heavily. I guess I'm not giving it back. I don't know what the right word is. But uh, the works of Dr. Tim Keller, Dr. Francis Collins, and Dr. Alvin Plantinga. I am I'm standing on their incredible work. I just want you to know. Uh, so you don't think, man, Jason's brilliant. Mm, I can read. Okay, so here's the question. Is there a God? Uh, let me start off by answering that question by saying that something that might shock you, um, but hopefully it'll make sense as we go along. It is next to impossible to prove without a shadow of a doubt, uh, unequivocally, that God exists. There's no test, there's no experience, there's no matrix of questions that can prove that God exists because Nearly every proof that we might give to prove that God exists is rooted in our subjective experiences. So I'll explain what I mean by that. So say you're driving in your car and it's the holiday season and you're going to the mall or Safeway or somewhere and you begin to pray, oh God, would you help me find a parking space? 
And then all of a sudden, there one opens up, and it's not handicapped, it's right up front, and you're like, bam, I'm parking there. And you're like, yes, God, he's on my side. Or you get into a, you get into a prestigious university. This is the one you wanted, you've been praying, and they say, yes, you can go to Chabot College. That's right. Or, yeah, I went to Chabot, so it's, so, okay, calm down. Or you get the job that you wanted, you applied and you got it, or you, you propose she says yes. Or you've been praying for a loved one who has a deadly disease and the loved one is healed. And you say, yes, there is a God because he answered my prayer. Now, do you see what I did there? Do you see what we do? What we've done in that situation is we have taken our subjective experience our subjective reasoning, and our limited scope of who we believe God is, we've passed him through that test, and because he passed our test, he's good and he exists. And you can already see the problem with that, because you don't always find a parking space. You don't get into the school. You don't get the job. Your marriage falls apart. The loved one passes away. See, because in that scenario, you could argue that because these things happened and I didn't get the answer that I wanted, well, clearly there is no God. So we need to be careful how we think about the existence of God and how we might use our words to explain that he does exist. Again, the first error that we can make, there's two really, the first error is that it's all based on our subjective experiences. And the second error is just using the word proof. Because when you use the word proof, you are essentially shutting down any kind of uh, discourse or uh, critical thinking. You're saying, ah, I have the proof that I need, that I need, that I subjectively need, and so I don't need anything else. And actually, a better word to use than proof, which I'm gonna, we're going to see in just a moment, is is the word evidence. Evidence for the existence of God. I'll tell tell you what I mean by that. Because what we're looking for here is what evidence points to a most probable uh, conclusion. So let's say you walk into a room and there's two kids in the room. They're each holding a paintbrush and a bucket of red paint. And there is red paint splattered everywhere. I don't mean they painted the walls. I mean it's splattered everywhere. It's on the floor. It's on the couch. It's on each other. Now, what's the conclusion that you would come to? It's an obvious one, right? It's the most probable that the children have ruined the room, right? That's the most probable conclusion. But what's also possible? It's possible that an earthquake shook the room at just the right way that the paint buckets went up in the air, splattered everything, and landed in the children's hands, and the paintbrush covered them just as you opened the door. Now, is that possible? Yeah, that's possible. Is it probable? No. It's always the children's fault, (laughs) always, okay? So what we want to do is we wanna look at what does the evidence point 
towards. Now, what I'm going to give you this morning is just three, uh, three pieces of evidence that point to the existence of God. And believe me, there, uh, there's enough that we could fill eight days of teaching that point to the evidence of the, and the existence of God. I'm going to give you three, and uh, hopefully this will just begin answering some questions for you, especially if you are searching. The first one uh, that points to the existence of God, we'll call it cosmic wonder. Uh, if you remember in your science classes growing up, you might remember the law of the conservation of mass. Do you remember that one? And uh, I'm going to simplify it, but it basically means that something cannot come from nothing. Okay? So uh, in, the idea is, is that you can take matter, okay, I've already lost some of you, but you can take matter and uh, you can rearrange it, you can move it, you can change its composition, you can change it on a molecular level, but you cannot remove it or add to it. Whatever you start with in a controlled system, that's what you end with. Okay, so take the theory of the Big Bang, which is a theory that a lot of scientists use to explain the existence of the universe. And, and I'm not going to try to dissuade you or persuade you towards the Big Bang. I just want you to think about it. So the theory of the Big Bang is that at one point, all of the matter in the universe, all of it, the, all of the matter that makes up stars and planets and, and you and me and Snickers bars and everything was condensed into one small finite point. Okay? And then, bang! That was for effect. It exploded, big bang, right? It exploded, and within like fractions of a second, we have uh, the formation of the universe, and the universe begins to expand. Okay? And then 13, or whatever we're up to, 23 billion years later, wherever we're up to now, we get to where we're at today. Okay? I know I'm oversimplifying it, but just stay with me. Some of you are like, that's not how it works. Stay with me. So then the question is, okay, so we have this, this finite point. How did we get to this? And what some people will say is, well, before we got to this, all of the matter in the universe condensed into a point, and then it exploded again, and then what you have is, over endless time, this expansion contract of all the matter in the universe. Now, the problem with that is that science knows no uh, function of causes and effects that infinitely happen both ways. That there is always, with every effect, there has to be a cause. We don't know any, there is no scientific explanation that would say that you can have an effect without a cause. And so, what you see in the, in the idea of cosmic wonder is that something or someone, whether we're going to go, again, I'm not trying to dissuade any theory of the Big Bang here necessarily, but something or someone had to be the initial cause for all things. And that something or someone has to exist outside of the natural world in order to create or begin the processes in the natural world. Does that make sense? Now, does that prove that God exists? It does not. But it does point 
to the fact that there needed to be an outside force acting upon the natural world to create or to begin what we see and feel and experience today. Okay? Doesn't prove God, but it points to him. In fact, Stephen Hawking said this, that the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. Stephen Hawking said that, that the odds of our universe happening are almost completely nil. And it's also been said that it takes more faith, it might take more faith to believe that our universe and life itself came about in an infinite process or out of nothing, or by, excuse me, by random chance than to believe in a supernatural being. Here's clue number two. We'll take it, we'll call it moral reasoning. Now, most people would agree that moral feelings and moral obligation are real, that we cringe and we shudder when we see injustice on the screen, when we, when we, not just when we see it happening to people that we don't know, but obviously when it happens to us or people that we know and love, uh, we, we see that and we say, that's wrong. That shouldn't be happening. And on the flip side, when we see people act in generosity or act in love or forgiveness, we say, oh, that's a good thing. We need more of that in our culture and our society. The question, though, is, says who? Says who? Because in the natural world, okay, think of your animal documentaries, planet Earth, deep blue sea, whatever, right? There's no goodness and peace and, and justice happening, right? It is kill or be killed, right? The lion doesn't go, you know, guys, hang on. We've been, we've been acting a little heavy against the antelope. Maybe we should just, this week, let's just go to trees or whatever. You know, let's, let, let's just take a break it hasn't been fair, right, guys? Like, that doesn't happen. The natural world is built on blood, right? So we can't, so, and, and here's what that does. It makes all morality subjective because what's good for you might not be good for me. What's good for, ready? What's good for one nation may not be good for another nation, because if all, okay, and this is gonna, this might freak you out. If all morality is subjective, who are we to say that one nation invading another and committing genocide is wrong? Because that nation is saying, well, this is good for us. This nation is our enemy for these reasons. We must commit genocide in order to keep our nation strong. And then we're over here saying, but you can't do that. What ground do we have to stand on to say that that's wrong? But if there's a God, that God says there is a moral standard because it's based upon me. It's based upon who I am. And now there is a more, see, morality, the Bible says that, uh, the Bible teaches that, that all all people, all, all men, all women, all human beings have a knowledge of what's good and evil. We have a knowledge of the existence of God in our hearts, but we suppress it, right? We know that it's there. And so the existence of morality, the, the fact that we say there, is, there are things that are good and there are things that are evil points to the fact that there is one, again, 
outside of the natural world who is establishing what is right and what is wrong regardless of the culture, regardless of the person, regardless of the country or the time or the space. Any sense of morality points to one who is outside of our natural world establishing morality. Clue number three, and this one's... uh, it's probably the least rigorous for the existence of God, but it might be the most personal. And it's kind of becoming my favorite. It's the idea of beauty. Um, all of us experience some forms of art and ideas that are, that are beautiful. And a common scientific uh, explanation of the human desire for beauty is that our ancestors came to recognize that you know, certain landscapes, if you saw like a beautiful sunset over a lake, and there's trees that some, sometime our ancestors said, oh, there's probably food there and it's safe. And, and that, that sounds reasonable, except you've seen pictures of a desolate wilderness, a, a desert, sun scorching down. And you, you've seen that picture and you still would say, well, that's beautiful, look at that. And there's no food out there. There's no hamburgers out there. There's, there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to gain. But you would still call it beautiful. The very existence of beauty uh, is tied to this, uh, this reality that not everything is just out of utility. Think about it this way. Um, when you, uh, scientists will say that, you know, there, there's really not anything, like love, what we think of as love, is not really something that's, uh, that's spiritual or soulful. It's, all it is is just chemicals in your brain that are firing at a certain time to tell you that this person or this child or whoever it is, um, this enjoyment, whatever it is, are, are firing in your brain to tell you, okay, it's safe to be with this person. Uh, you can build a tribe. You can build a community. It's to your benefit to keep this person close to you. Now, I'll tell you, that did not go through my mind the, the day I held my daughter for the first time. I was not thinking in my mind, well, she looks beautiful. How do you hold a baby? She, she looks beautiful. <laughs> However you hold a baby. She looks beautiful, and she's here. We've been waiting nine months, and I can't wait to see what God does in her life and what, how God uses her to teach me, and I'm excited but don't get too excited because these are just chemicals going off in your brain to tell you to show affection to this baby because it's just another, you know, it's, it's, it's just cells. It's just outside of the body now. Now you have a, you know, like you don't think that. You don't have those deep, you don't, you don't have those thoughts when you're at a memorial or a funeral saying goodbye to a loved one who's passed, who's passed away. You don't think, oh, these are just chemicals in my brain. Like there's something deep and meaningful happening. See, the idea of beauty teaches us that not everything is utility. Not everything is just for some sort of use in our life. And, and the reality, Tim Keller puts it this way, that the existence of God explains the beauty paradox as our recognition that the world around us is good, but it has been corrupted. The ugliness isn't inherent, and in fact, it doesn't belong to its original design. Rather, the glory we see in the world or in other people reflects the beauty of its creator just as the moon reflects the light of the sun. Now, does this prove God's existence? No, but again, it points to 
to his reality. So, is there a God? I would argue yes. But the next question is, but what if there is a God? Is there a God? Yes, but what if there is? It's one thing to say, is there a God? It's something else to say, well, what if there is? If there is a God, then, as we've said, there is more to life than just the natural world. Um, it would be hard to argue that, and listen, I'm Bay Area born and raised, so you know who I'm rooting for on, on Sundays. But it would be hard to argue that Tom Brady isn't one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Okay? <laughs> the guy's got how many Super Bowl rings? After his third, <laughs> which is a funny thing to say, but after his third Super Bowl ring, he sits down with a, with a reporter, and the reporter's asking questions, and, and the reporter asks, you know, hey, how does it feel to win three Super Bowls? And Tom Brady's response the first time I heard it, and I didn't hear it until years later, but it knocked me uh, right on my butt. He said, I thought there'd be more than this. I thought it'd be, I, uh, is this all there is after you win three Super Bowls? I thought there'd be more to it. I thought I'd be more excited. I thought, I'd, would, I thought I had reached my dream and my goal. And God, there's got to be more to life than just this. Now, we might scoff at Tom Brady, okay? We might say, pfft. Bro, you won three, you're going to win four more, four more, or whatever it is. What are you talking about? Here's, what, here's the takeaway. Tom Brady's finding out that this natural world was never meant to fulfill the greatest desires of our heart. And that, that in order for that to happen, there needs to be something else beyond the natural world. You dig? That... Our satisfaction, our true fulfillment in life can't come from anything that we experience in the here and now in this world, but it can only come from outside of this world. At the core, there being a God implies that we are more than just flesh and blood and that there is a world beyond what we see. And if there is a God who exists in the supernatural, then human beings would logically desire to connect with this God and the supernatural. Call it heaven, the afterlife, the next world. Tolkien put it like this, white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Like there's something in us that wants to escape this life. Because deep down, or maybe right on the surface, this life is not satisfying. It hurts. It's painful. And we long, we long for a world. I mean, and this is what the fight for, fight against injustice, this is what a lot of people are, they're trying to make the world, when people say they're trying to make the world a better place, they're trying to clean up all of the messes that human beings have been making for however long. And the problem is, we're going to keep making messes. And so we long for the afterlife. We long for something better. If there is a God, then perhaps there is a way that this God wants me to live my life. If there is a God, that would imply that there is a specific way, specific commands, specific uh, ethics that he would want us to live out, that we are not the sole arbiters of what we choose to do in life, nor do we define morality. 
As stated earlier, the problem with morality without God is that it's all subjective. But if there is a God, then all of a sudden morality becomes not subjective, but now objective. The existence of God, we can assume that there is a way that God wants us to live our life. Think about it this way. If you wrote a story, if you wrote a story and, and you make up the characters, you, know, you, you have to write in the character. You have to know what the, the motivation of those characters are. You have to know them inside and out. And you are writing them in such a way so that they are going to make it to the end of the story. You know the end of the story. You know what makes those characters tick. And so you are writing how they are supposed to exist in this story. And if there is a God, that means that he's the author of this life and that God has a way for us to live uh, that is not, not based on our understanding of life, but on his understanding. And so if there's a God who establishes right and wrong, then in order to make it into the supernatural, I, into the afterlife, I must do everything I can to be a good person, to do what's right, to keep myself at the 51% threshold of being good and not the 49, Right? But it doesn't matter because there's always someone worse than me. There's always someone who has sinned more than me. Just go back and look at the 20th century. There's plenty of them, right? There's plenty in the last 23 years, in the 21st. That's all you need to do. Just find somebody who's worse and just say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. And then you feel better about yourself. Just keep yourself as a good person. Because otherwise, if you're not a good person, you may not be able to go to heaven. And if there is a God, then perhaps he has a plan for my life. When we talk about plan, we, we, we ask two different questions. The first is, what does God want from me, and what, is he got, what does God want with me? And the first question, what does he want from me, is a fealty and devotion, he wants me to be asking the question, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What will make you happy? How do I throw myself at your feet? What, what, is, it that, uh, what is the plan that you want with me? Do you want me to, do you want me to go to this school? Because if you really want me to go to this school, I'll go to the school. Do you want me to go to the, and get this job? Because if you don't want me to get this job, then I won't apply for this job. But if you want me to get this job and then I don't get this job, then I'm going to feel really scared because I'm not in your will right now. I'm not in your plan uh, do you want me to go and serve in, in this ministry? Because, you know, God, I feel like I should do this, and if I don't, you'll be mad at me, right? Like, what, what is it that God wants from me? And then the second question is, what does he want with me? Implying a relationship, but, you know, I don't really know, is God upset with me? Is he, is, did he have a good day? Did he have a bad day, right? So I better stay on his good side so that I get the good side of God. I better do the good things that he's laid out, the morality, all of it, because if I don't stay on his good side, then I might slip into, right, uh, in, I might have a bad relationship with him because my relationship with God is solely determined on what I do. So there comes this real burden in our life. If we are going to, if there is a God, then I am constantly under the weight of, am I doing what's good and right? Am I living my life in the way that God wants me to so that I stay in his will, and if I stay in his will, then I can go to heaven. 
I stay a good person and then I can go and be with him forever and escape the natural world into something better. That's, that's how you answer, what if there is a God? But there's one more question. What if it's the God of the Bible? And we must ask this question, and we must answer it. If it's the God of the Bible, then that changes the previous three implications. Because if you noticed, the previous three implications all rested upon you and me doing the right thing, being the good person, having our lives in order. And that's not only terrifying, that is a weight we cannot bear. So what if there is a God, and what if it's the God of the Bible? Now we're going to do something that we have, that many of you have been wondering if we're going to do this or not, and I'd like you to open up your Bibles. I know, some of you were like, he forgot, he forgot. <laughs> but let me tell you, I wanted to, t- I did that on purpose, because you can't argue for the existence Let me say this differently. It's generally not the best idea to to argue for the existence of God using the Bible. Stay with me. Because we believe, if you're a Christian, we believe this book has authority. Amen? It does. But if you're talking, don't argue with people. If you're talking with people about your belief and you want them to see the evidence for God... Why would you use a book that they don't believe has any authority? There's so much evidence for the existence of God. Like I said, you don't need, don't start there. Let's say that. Don't start there. Psalm 33. And I'm going to ask you, this is a tradition, if you're new, this is a tradition in our church that we stand for the reading of God's word, and I'm going to ask you to stand. And the reason why we do that, if you're new, is because everything you've heard from me thus far And everything you're going to hear after I read the Bible is me doing my best to explain things. But I'm limited in scope. I'm not brilliant. I'm not perfect. But when you hear the word of God, we believe as Christians, this is perfect. This is the word of God. He's speaking to us. And so, with that, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody with him to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. This is God's word for us today, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we're going to reference more of Psalm 33, but I wanted to start there. 
Implication number one, if it's the God of the Bible, that there is more to life than the natural world. In the opening verses of Psalm 33, the writer starts off by saying, shout for joy to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because uh, he spoke the world into existence. That God, before everything, him existing outside of nature, he did not have to gather up supplies or ask someone else to help him with the project that God spoke and the world, the ex- all of the universe came into being by the word of his mouth. And the writer is praising God for that. That there is, and, and what that teaches us is that God is outside, again, he's outside of the natural world and he's creating it. And what you see here is that he's not just creating it and saying, okay, go play, I'm gonna go do something else but that he's intimately, and you'll see this later in the passage as well, he is intimately observing and apart and engaging with the world. In fact, so much so, the writer here wants us to understand that there is something far beyond what we can see and experience in just this life. In Colossians 2, uh, Paul says to set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek, the first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Thereby saying that there is a difference, there is a separation between the natural world, what you and I see and experience every single day, and the supernatural world. And that the God of the Bible not only exists outside of the natural world in the supernatural, but he is intimately involved in the natural that he is, did not just spin everything and set it in motion and then walked away, but that God created all of this and said, okay, now let's continue to move. God is the only being that exists in both the natural and the supernatural. The God of the Bible does not want us to be ignorant or ignore the fact that there is more to life than what we can feel, taste, touch, see, or hear. The trophies, the jobs, the money, the pleasure, these are not wrong in and of themselves, but they will not satisfy. And what the writer is saying here is that the the way that we find true satisfaction, true identity, true self, true knowledge is not rooted in the things of the world, but is rooted in God himself who exists in the supernatural. Implication number two. There is a way that God wants me to live my life. Look at Psalm 33. Again, verse 10. uh, The writer says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And what the writer is saying here is that, look, the, the, the wisdom and the, the knowledge of the nations, of us, compared to the wisdom of God, doesn't even compare. Like our wisdom and the way that we see the world is insignificant compared to how God sees the world and his wisdom and his knowledge. And if the God of the Bible exists, then it's not just a possibility, but a surety that God's way is better than our way. Why? Because because he exists outside of the natural and he's the author of the natural, he wrote the story, he knows exactly how all of this is supposed to work together, then his way of how the characters, I'll put it like that, the characters in his story that he's written, his way of the way that they live their life is better than the way that we believe that we can live our life. And so his morality, his ethics, uh, the, way that, uh, God, the way that God wants us to handle our finances, our identity, to understand forgiveness, to show patience, to, to interact with other people, 
God's way is always better. But see, in order to understand and to adopt the way of God, you know what we have to do? We have to let go of ours. We have to let go of our way. Implication number three, God has a plan for my life. In the previous section we looked at, we had, there was two questions. What does God want from me and what does God want with me? Let's look at the second one though. What does God want with me? Let me just read in Psalm 33 again. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. What do you see here? You see a God who has interest in his creation. You see a God who's not only knowledgeable, but extremely loving and caring and intimate. And one of the things that uh, brings, brings me comfort in the darkest times of my life when I'm wrestling with sadness or sorrow is that the Lord sees me. The Lord sees you in your sorrow and in your hurt. He is not ignorant, nor is he apathetic to the hurts that you and I carry. What does God want with us? He wants us to know him the way he knows us. He wants us to see him for who he is, a protector, provider, and a father. What does he want from us? Well, if he is the God of the universe, if he is the God of all creation. He wants our devotion and our love, our devotion through love. You know, it's interesting, the great commandment, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, great commandment of all of Israel was to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, right? It wasn't to do your best, work harder. It was to love the Lord your God. Our, our devotion comes from a place of love, not from a place of fear. It comes from a place of love. Now here's the thing. God knows that we are unable to have our eyes fixed on the supernatural. He knows that we are, I'll put it, put it lightly, reluctant to give up our own way. He knows that so often we reject his plan for our lives to build our own plan. God knows this. And so, that's why God sent Jesus, sent him out of the supernatural into the natural to show us what a supernatural life looked like. And Jesus coming to earth perfectly lived out the way of God without fault, without failure. And Jesus embraced God's plan for his life even though it came at great cost because he knew that God's way and God's plan was better than his own. And because Jesus did these things and accomplished them, 
See, his credit, what we read in the scriptures is that his credit for doing these things, if we believe, is applied to us. His credit for living out the supernatural life, for following God's way, for accepting God's plan for his life. The Bible says if we believe, that's credited to us as if we had done it. And on top of that, not only is it credited to us, Jesus says, and as you live this life, I'm going to be with you to walk with you throughout this life. Because even though it's been credited to you, God loves, it says the steadfast love fills the earth. God loves us so much, he says, I, I want you to experience my way. I want you to experience the supernatural. I want you to experience my plan for your life because not only does it give me glory, but it's good for you. And friends, God wants the best for us. And if the God of the Bible exists, then he wants us to trust him. He wants us to see him in all of his magnificence and his power and his love. And he wants us to say, I will trust you. I will trust you, God, that wherever you lead me, it will be good. I will trust that whatever you give me will be enough. And I will trust that no matter what happens in this life, you and you alone will be my hope. Maybe you've come this morning and maybe you're wrestling with belief. Maybe you're asking a lot of questions. Maybe you're a regular resonator and you're asking a lot of questions. Can I just give you some comfort and say that God wants you to ask questions? He's a big God. He actually invites us to come to him with these questions. Even being here today is a part of getting answers. I'm going to leave you with the end of Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad with him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are, that you are. God, I thank you that there is so much in this life that points to not just your existence, but your ever-present steadfast love for us. And my prayer for my friends in this room is that no matter where we are at in our spiritual journey, no matter what questions we're asking, no matter what we're wrestling with this morning, that by your gracious and loving hand, you would continue to lead us to answers that point to you, that point to your ever-present love. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.